Father God, we praise you that we have this privilege of listening to you now in your word. Help us to listen hard, to hear what you're saying to each of us in our own lives, to us as a church, as we see what it means to live by the Spirit, to live as children of God, to trust in Jesus, have the life that he gives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. How do you feel when you hear that word, obligation? Um, Obligations can be pretty annoying and frustrating, can't they? Um, The obligation not to drive into a yellow box until the exit is clear is one that continually catches me out and infuriates me. And, you know, outside of London, it doesn't really matter. You can do it, you'll get away with it. In London, you're going to get a fine if you do that in certain places, because they've got the cameras out and they'll um, go for you. Obligations like that just seem annoying. Uh, What about obligations that seem impossible if you actually take them seriously? Did you know um, the song Happy Birthday is still under copyright and as such may not be sung in a public performance in the UK without permission from and payment to Warner Brothers? Do you know that? It's extraordinary, isn't it? As recently as 2015, Warner Brothers went to court to establish that this was in fact the case and they could continue to receive royalties, particularly when Happy Birthday features in films. What an obligation that is. It seems kind of ridiculous. It seems impossible to take seriously. Then there are obligations that we kind of put on ourselves because we feel we owe someone for something. Uh, you know, well, they, they brought really nice wine last time they came. We'd better do the same when we go there. Um, she spent at least £50 on my birthday. I'll have to spend that on her now. These are obligations that are accompanied in various ways by fear and frustration and kind of guilt. So when we come to verse 12 in in Romans chapter 8 and we hear of an obligation, after all this talk of no condemnation and you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, it's grace alone, it could feel like we arrive at verse 12 and we go, oh, here we go. Here's the catch. You know, I knew there'd be one. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, when someone gives you something nice, they obviously want something. And look, now God is going to get into the rules and the things we have to do in response to what he's done for us. I don't know if you've seen the film Saving Private Ryan. It's kind of 20 years old now, isn't it? But um, Tom Hanks is lying there, mortally wounded at the end. And I think, I think I've got this right. I might have remembered it wrong. But I think at the end, he, he turns to Private Ryan... Um, who uh, this crack squad of soldiers have, have they've lost everything they've lost some of them have lost their lives to save private ryan and, and and he's the last one of however many brothers it is in the family and the idea is they've gone behind enemy lines to take him back to um, the u.s in, in in world war ii and tom hanks is mortally wounded and he turns to private ryan and he says earn it before he before he dies earn it You know, we've saved you. Now you use your life to earn what was done for you. And actually, many people live the Christian life as if that is how it works with God. It's sometimes called the debtor's ethic. 
You know, look at the sacrifice Jesus has done for you. Now in return, you must sacrifice yourself for him. There's your obligation. And so we think, okay, well, okay, fair enough. And we set out trying to prove, yes, I'm good enough. I, I'm worthy of what Jesus did for me. And actually, when we do that, we find that it's hard and that we can't do it. And we find our old sins and our failings kind of stick with us. And then we end up settling slightly miserably for kind of mediocrity in our Christian lives. So we have an obligation, says Paul. But does he mean that kind of debtor's ethic with all the frustrations and annoyances and feelings of impossibility that go with that? Well, there is actually another kind of obligation that can be put on us. How about this? So you're given a free cinema pass to see any film that you like. And actually, it's not the View cinema or the Odeon with everybody else. It's the everyman, okay? And it's in the best seats, you know, the, the lovely sofas, and you get to put your feet up, and there's a free bar, and, you're gonna, and you can just go and see any film you like from any time. You've got this pass that allows you to do that. So if you're given that free pass, well, there is a kind of obligation, isn't there, to go and use it. You've been given it. What a, what a wonderful thing. And, and, you know, presuming you do love film and you think this is a good thing, can you see, it's an obligation, but it, it, it's a rather different one from the one that gets laid on us as a debt. You're not going to the cinema in order to kind of earn back or prove you're worthy or um, deserve what has been done for you. You're, you're going there because you've been given this wonderful thing. What a, what a lovely thing to be given. Go and enjoy it and benefit from it. And that, in fact, is the kind of obligation that Paul has in mind here. So you can see on the back of the notice sheet two things we're going to see about this obligation in our time together. First of all, there is an obligation to die and live. Verses 12 to 13. We have an obligation to die and live. We have an obligation, but not to the flesh, he says, to live according to it. The old way of the flesh if you've been with us, you remember, was a way that led to death. That's what he says next. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So in the light of all that Jesus has done for you, and he saved you so that you can stand uh, before God completely confident today with no condemnation, in the light of that, don't carry on in the old way that you've been saved from, the way that leads to death. Now, we talked about this before. If you've been here, as we've looked through these chapters 5 to 8, you know, it's like being rescued from drowning after your boat has capsized and sunk in the middle of the ocean and you, you manage to activate the transponder thing and it's freezing cold and it's a matter of minutes before you lose consciousness. And that is living according to the flesh. It's leading to death and it's only a matter of time. Okay? But then the lifeboat comes and you're saved by the lifeboat. And you're pulled out of the water into a, a, a new life, if you like. You're, you're given a new start as you head back to shore. You're in the rescue boat and you say, as you're in the rescue boat, you're heading back to shore and you, you turn to the person who's rescued you and you say, Can I, do you mind if I just jump back in the ocean again? You know, I don't need you anymore. You can go back to base. I'll be fine. No, you see, no, you won't. You, you've just been pulled out of there. 
If you do that, you are going to die. It will only be a matter of time out in the open ocean. You see, that is Paul's logic here. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That is where that life leads you. We have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, the old way of life that had a hold over us before. We were slaves for it. In one sense, we had no choice. There was nothing we can do. But now we have a new obligation to a new master and a new life. And note there's a kind of paradox in the way that Paul uses the language in verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, what will happen? You will live. Do you see that kind of reversal of living and dying? The uh, preacher John Stott put it like this. There is a kind of life that leads to death. And there is a kind of death that leads to life. Can you see? So you can either just live how you like, where you're the boss, and the result, Paul says, as the Bible makes clear, is death, eternal death, separation from God. So you can live now and do that, or you can die to yourself and your old way of life under the flesh, and you will live. Now, what does he mean by putting to death? Remember, if you've been with us, we've had this image of the Christian being a house under a new ownership with the rubble and mess and after effects of the old neglectful owner still left over and lingering on, but now there is a new owner and the house is under new control and things are being tidied up. And and to change the picture slightly is as if there is an old self and a new self. And the old self has died because Jesus died. And yet it's a bit like one of those monsters in a horror film. You know, it's mortally wounded, the old self, and death is inevitable, but it's still kind of quivering and showing signs of life. And and Paul is saying the route to life is when you see those little signs of life in the old self, show no mercy, stick the knife in, so to speak. Put it to death. When the temper rises, when there is lust or malice or hatred or self-centeredness or envy or greed or whatever it is, stick the knife in, put to death, show no mercy. It doesn't belong here in the new life under the Spirit. But just note how putting to death happens. What does he say? Is it really all down to us? You know, come on, Jesus has, has died for you. Now you get on and you get on with putting to death sin in your life. That's not quite what he says because if it, if it is that, it sounds like that impossible obligation again, doesn't it, that leads me not to life but to fear and despair because, you know, that, 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 that leftover from the old life isn't something I feel able to put to death by myself. But he says, by the Spirit put to death. He is the key. The Holy Spirit is the key here. And to understand what it means to put to death by the Spirit, we then have to see what Paul says next about the new life the spirit brings because this obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the body the remnant of the old life of the flesh this obligation is secondly an obligation as children not slaves okay so this is the second final thing to see an obligation as children not slaves because he says verse 14 4 continue to explain what what it means to put to death the misdeeds of the body, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
So do you remember the Israelites when they were rescued from slavery and taken across the Red Sea into a new life beyond? They were led by a column of smoke by day and a pillar of fire at night. And that was the spirit leading them through the desert. That's the kind of image Paul is recalling here. This new life is not a life where we have to go in alone by ourselves and get on with killing sin before it kills us in our own strength. It is a life led by the spirit. Verse 14 is not, first of all, a verse about kind of personal guidance, which is, you know, as, uh, how, how this verse is sort of, these verses, we love, to pluck, we love to pluck them out of context, and we love to sort of say, oh, the Spirit of God is going to tell me what job to get or who to marry or whatever. Now, in the context here, it's much more fundamental, this leading by the Spirit. It's about who we are in our new lives in the Spirit. If we're trusting in Jesus and we have the Spirit, and we do, remember verse 9 last time, we have the Holy If you're a Christian who's trusting in Jesus, you do have the Holy Spirit. Be confident. If that is who we are, and it is, we're trusting Jesus, then we are children of God. That is what he's saying. Not we might become children if we try hard enough. You know, if, we, if, you, if you really work hard at killing sin... You might get rewarded with adoption eventually, once you've proved that you're good and useful to God. What would that be? That would be a life of fear, of fearing whether we're really good enough and can ever be accepted. And that is how so many people in our world, and, and, and even those who call themselves Christians, sometimes end up living, never really sure if God accepts us, always feeling like we're not good enough. It's certainly a kind of classic feature of, of, of some of the other religions in the world. Think of Islam. You talk to a Muslim, a sort of faithful Muslim who takes their Muslim life seriously, and you ask them, do you, do you have assurance? They say, no, no, I can't possibly. I can't possibly know for sure that God will accept me on the last day. I've just got to try really hard now. And Paul is saying, no, that is the hallmark of slavery, verse 15. And you have been given a spirit, not so that you might live in fear again, wondering if you can be accepted. You've been given a spirit who's brought about your adoption to sonship. It talks about sons, being sons of God. And, and that's not just sort of a sexist, old-fashioned language. In that culture... That kind of language emphasised to both women and men that the new life that we've been given in the Spirit in Christ is an adoption with all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son in that culture 2,000 years ago. That is what you have in your new life in Christ. That's why he uses that particular word. And, and being adopted to sonship means that we're given the status of the son, of Jesus, who is the Son with a capital S. We have been adopted as his brothers and sisters. And so we get to enjoy what he enjoys as the Son. We get to call God Father just as he does. So Jesus consistently addressed God as Father in prayer in the Gospels, except at the cross where that relationship was broken. But we heard, even in Gethsemane, we heard in the first reading, did you hear, as Jesus prayed there, what did he pray? He prayed, Abba, Father. 
as he poured out himself before God, as he recognized what was to come uh, the next day. He, he's praying to intimately, to, in intimate relationship with his father. Abba is a deeply intimate family term for a father. It's not, it's not quite daddy, which kind of implies a kind of infantilizing of, of Christian faith. It's not really daddy, but it is that sort of dear father, the one that you can only, the name you can only call someone when you're in the family. And that is who the God of the universe is. Where so many human fathers fail and don't show up and don't love in this way, here is a father with whom in Christ we can have the greatest intimacy as adopted children. So do you see that, that there's no room for fear here? There is only total security, total confidence. And that confidence then extends to assurance. Verse 16, one of the blessings of being God's child is not just being God's child, but knowing that you are God's child. There is a slight difference, but the, the Spirit uses all means at his disposal to assure his children that we belong to God. And it's significant that this verse, which again is another one we love to sort of pluck out and read out of context, it's actually in the context of Paul speaking about prayer. As we call God Father, the Spirit works in us, testifying to us, strengthening us, so that we know we are his children. As we hear the gospel, as we hear God's word, again, the Spirit works in us so that we feel addressed personally by God. Now, it's not sensible to prescribe too closely what it feels like to be a child of God, what it feels like to know God. It will feel different for different people for all kinds of different reasons, but however you describe it, there is a difference between knowing facts about God and knowing God. And that is why prayer is so fundamental to the Christian life, calling God our Father, relying on him as his children. See, if prayer doesn't feature all that much in our Christian lives, both prayer with others, prayer by ourselves, well, we shouldn't then be surprised if we struggle to feel close to God the assurance that we really are his children, because children talk to their parents, to their father, and particularly to this father who loves them. We have the uh, privilege and access to him to do that. See, prayer itself is one of those things we often put in the obligation category, isn't it? Now, I feel obliged to say my prayers, tick it off the list, get it done so I can move on with my day. That is the attitude of a slave, the fear of a legalist, not the relationship of a child to a father who loves them and, and loves to hear from them. You know, we might say, are, are Christians obliged to pray? Well, no, yes, Christians are obliged to pray, but not in the sense of obliged in order to get a good score in the prayer exam and, and be considered for acceptance as God's children one day in the future, but rather as dearly loved children. We've been adopted here and now to enjoy the privileges of what they've been given. And like being obliged to go to the everyman when you've been given a free pass, it's a privilege. Go and enjoy it, that access that we have to our Heavenly Father. So do you see the logic? When we understand our new status as adopted children, of course we want to live a Jesus-shaped life. And that is Paul's logic here. So we, we, we started, do you remember, the, the question was, well, how do I, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body 
Well, you need to understand your status as a child of God, the access that you have, the privilege of that relationship. And then, of course, you're going to want to live a Jesus-shaped life, dying to sin, living for him. And then he goes on, it's not just dying to sin, but verse 17, even in regards to suffering as we live the life Jesus lived. Do you remember Romans 8 is like past the parcel, you unwrap one layer, you discover something amazing, but then you discover there's another layer to go, and that's what we've got here, is he just brings up this whole subject of suffering, it's a kind of trailer for next time. We've got a whole another layer to unwrap and see, and we'll have to come back next time. But when you understand your new identity in Christ, how can you do anything other than put to death what remains left over from the old identity? That is the point. It's not a problem, but a privilege. It's not something we have to do in our own strength. It's something the Spirit enables us to do in Christ's strength. As by faith we remember our new identity. We remember that we're no longer slaves to sin, that we don't need to give in to those old longings that tempt us now. So what then does this actually mean as we face that continuing battle with temper and family arguments and temptations to feel sorry for ourselves and anger and lust and greed and envy and whatever it is that that we struggle with? Well, it means that we can bring to bear all the weapons that God has given us in order to put to death that remnant of our old life in the flesh which doesn't belong in us anymore there is the weapon of the gospel Jesus died so that sin could be forgiven there is now no condemnation I've been set free I've been given a new start this sin doesn't belong here anymore turn away from it there is the weapon of our new identity in Christ when God looks at me he doesn't think you know yeah there goes an angry person who always loses their rag There goes a lustful person who can't help their addiction to porn. There goes a greedy person who can't help but always have one more. He he, he looks and he says, there goes my beloved adopted child who has a new life, a new identity in Christ. And as we believe that new identity for ourselves, we find we're, we're able to say no to sin that would have inevitably captured us before. You know, as we said last time, we're not caterpillars being told to fly. That is impossible. We're caterpillars who've been turned into butterflies. And flying is now possible. And so when Paul says, put to death by the spirit, the misdeeds of the body, he is saying, claim the privileges of your new identity. This is no longer impossible. Yes, it's gradual. There will be times when the battle is as ferocious as ever and we're reminded of our sin. But in those times, look and keep looking to our saviour, remembering the new life and the new identity that he's given us. It reminds me of a child who was adopted into a loving family after years of starvation and neglect. And the only way this child knew how to find food was by begging and, and stealing or rummaging through bins in the streets. And the family adopts this child and gives her home-cooked, nutritious, and delicious food every day. But each night when the sun sets, she's gripped by the fear of going hungry the next day. And so she sneaks out 
and she steals and she hoards food from the rubbish bins. Now, on one level, you could look at that child's an outsider and you can think, well, why would she do that when she can eat proper food safely in her new family every day? But this is a child who spent her whole life up till now as a slave to hunger and in herself knows no other way. And she needs to learn the new life of her adopted family and the new privileges and the new responsibilities and that she can trust these parents who have adopted her to care for her not just today but tomorrow. And that, to begin with, may feel foreign and and strange but gradually her new life begins to make sense and she learns to trust her father to, to provide for her and to care for her and to believe that when they say they won't let her down, they mean it. See, that is the life led by the Spirit that Paul is laying out for us here. Adoption as God's children. Totally secure. Totally loved. Totally at peace with him, a new life that we don't deserve, but we can live day by day. So in the light of that, put to death what doesn't belong in this new life and do it in the power of the spirit that he's given us. As we remember our new identity, we say, Jesus has done it. I trust in him. I have, we have an obligation. So let's go and enjoy it. Let me pray now. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. We've not received the Spirit to make us slaves, so we live in fear again, but we've been given the Spirit who gives us adoption to sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Father, thank you for the privilege that you give to anyone who trusts in Jesus, that these privileges are ours this day. I pray for anyone who's still looking into these things, who's not understood what it means for Jesus to have died and risen from the dead, not ready to to trust him yet, but pray that you would enable them to see how good you are and what it is that we are invited to receive for ourselves when we trust in Jesus and turn from the life that leads to death and set out on this new path that leads to life. Help us to enjoy the privileges of our new life in our prayer, in all of the way that we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.